everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you uh, by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we're recording alongside on Helix, the digital conference that's been hosted by One Nucleus. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Stevenson, who's going to offer us some insights from the perspective of a global technology and so solutions supplier to all parts of the life sciences ecosystem. Mark is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Thermo Fisher uh, Scientific. And uh, he uh, is responsibility for uh, a number of the businesses, uh, specialty, specialty uh, diagnostics business, uh, as well as the company's innovation and digital strategy. So Thermo Fisher is an New York Stock Exchange listed uh, multinational, providing technology and services across, as I say, across the whole of the ecosystem, working with pharma, biotechs, hospitals, uh, clinical diagnostics labs, universities, research institutes, and government agencies. So, um, Mark, uh, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, I hope you and all those you care about are keeping safe and well. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Excited to have the conversation with you. So great. So, um, so since the start of the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, Thermo Fisher has uh, been very much in the in the vanguard of the life science sector's response. Before we dive into some of the sort of specific initiatives, however, um, that you know the company is involved in, could you sort of describe how the pandemic has actually been impacting the sort of the day-to-day -day activities of the company and, and its employees. Yeah, sure, Mike. I mean, you're right. Since the, really the outset, we've been very much trying to mobilize um, all our resources for COVID. So that's really taken a lot of our day-to-day -day activities, working with governments, agencies, industry partners, across a number of things, just from basic safety supplies, other products to address the outbreak. Um, you know, particularly trying to focus on the analysis of the virus, diagnostics, and ultimately we hope, you know, as companies progress, new therapies and diagnostics. So our own internal focus, we sort of took a three-pronged um, focus, I would say, on that, how to manage our business. The first we said, well, let's make sure our colleagues are safe. So while the majority of our colleagues have been working at home, we've actually kept all of our operations going. So they've been coming to the facilities. So we wanted to make sure we could still serve our, our colleagues in that and our customers. In, in that sort of second guiding principle for us was business continuity. So we've very much tried to maintain our operations, maintain our supply chains, responding. And then thirdly, how do we sort of manage the company resources? We've seen big changes in our business, uh, both headwinds for us and also tailwinds. So we've been managing our business through those areas. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll probably uh, have a deeper dive in, in, into that. But so have you had to sort of like you know, re-engineer, though, sort of any of the, uh, of the activities? Like you sort of said, you know, the, there, are, there have been some changes to that. How extensive has the re-engineering of, of, of the activity been to keep things going? Yeah, I mean, really, it's, it's been, as I say, number one was to keep our colleagues 
safe. So, you know, health and safety protocols at each site, we tried to follow global public guidance. Where we did have a, a, a COVID positive case, we would review that site, extra cleaning, we socially distanced uh, the site, work reagents, um, use of face masks, we have temperature checking coming into all of our sites with limited visitors and continue to use virtual technologies we're now using, Mike. We've not doing global travel, we've changed that. You know, at the moment where we are today, now as government changed their protocols across the world, we're going through the same process to reopen some of our sites. So we have a certain level, each site needs to submit a plan against that level. And then we've been ramping up the density of our employees on that site. So that's been the re-engineering we've done really physically of how we've kept our work going to uh, to the employees and to our suppliers. Yeah. So, so um, you know, in your introductory remarks, you mentioned how that that the company had pivoted uh, to, towards uh, sort of COVID nineteen. The company has you know, four uh, key business segments: um, laboratory products and services, which accounts for about forty percent. Uh, life sciences solutions, which is 26%, analytical instruments, 21%, and specialty diagnostics, 14 How do you think the pandemic uh, might disrupt those proportions? Um, and, you know, again, sort of what, what, what are you doing to sort of you know, minimize, I guess, the core business impact? Yeah, it was really, really the segments by customer type we saw the disruption to. So, for example, in the academic and pharma research labs, that activity has really slowed down. And that's our reagents, our instruments associated with that. In diagnostics, where we had a specialty diagnostics, for example, for allergy testing or transplant, those have just completely slowed down as well. Um, of course, across the other side, what we've experienced is, is big uptakes in new areas of COVID research. Uh, we've also experienced the pharmaceutical manufacturing for drugs and therapies continued, and then new diagnostic applications, of course, for COVID. And you know, we as a leadership team, you know, having been through actually several recessions before, this has obviously been a sharper one, we've tried to continue to maintain the longer-term focus for the business and then be very agile to move resources around people in the company to new areas uh, to reassign what they were working on during these last three months. Right. So, uh, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, you also said, you know, how it's, it's kind of like being business as usual, how you try to, you know, keep um, sort of activ activities going. You have a global footprint. It's sort of, um, to what extent... Uh, have your supply chains uh, been impacted by COVID-19? And again, you know, sort of looking forward, what processes are you going to, you know, have to put in place to sort of, you know, mitigate, you know, such potential uh, disruption? Yeah, as you say, we have a very global supply chain. I mean, the, the company itself, you know, 75,000 colleagues spread all around the world, manufacturing sites, you know, we put in place an incident team for the supply chain straight away with new protocols, not only at the sites, but also with the suppliers if they were having any challenges. I'd say the main challenge has been transportation um, with a reduction in air freight, other freight, border issues, 
It's been longer to navigate that. Um, it's taken us more effort on that side. But I'm pleased to say all of our sites are operating, all of our supply chains are still operating. I think one of the things that will come out of this is our customers and ourselves look at redundancies of supply chain after this. Because when an event happens like this, you know, we sometimes plan for earthquakes in California or wars in other areas, but you know, we didn't all plan for a global pandemic. So the robustness of supply chain and the distance of, of that travel is something I think is going to change going forward. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess, you know, given the, sort of the nature of, of this virus and we don't know what it's going to be like uh, going forward, I guess that's you know, part of the business continuity planning going forward. Um, so uh, if we, Thermo Fisher has been sort of, you know, one of the leaders in the development of, of, of COVID-19 diagnostics, uh, whether that's for the quick identification of infection or, or determining uh, whether a person has previously been exposed to, to the virus. First, can you sort of describe what the company had to do to sort of your pivot to that, you know, crucial, critical challenge and, and then sort of you know, update us uh, you know, on the sort of status of, 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 you know, where you are in, in, in that, in, in the, sort of the development of the diagnostics and the delivery of the diagnostics? Yeah, in terms of designing the assay in the first place, a PCR assay to design and test the virus, that was relatively straightforward. So in China, when we first got the sequence, we could design an assay, very specifically three genes across the assay. So if there were any mutations, we could detect that. And we'd done that previously for SARS and MERS and Zika, applied biosystems. That was the sort of history of TACMAN assays. I think what, what was different at this time was to create the scale. So as we went through February and March, we both had to get clinical samples, which originally was hard. And then we got regulatory approval first in the US and then in Europe, we now have more than 52 countries. But then you had to scale massively. So the last three months have been about scaling everything in that assay. There's about 72 components in the assay, scaling that, scaling up the sample prep, the swabs that are used, the transport media. And then after that, working with the infrastructure. So across the US, infrastructure is disaggregated, working state by state. Some countries took an approach like the UK to build brand new labs. So we supported three new brand, brand new lighthouse labs in the UK. And then to try to industrialize that. How do you manufacture? We're currently manufacturing about 10 million tests a week. You take an example like the UK that set a goal to do 100,000 tests per day and now scaling again. We see people doubling that capacity. And so that's what we've been focused on up until this point. You know, I'm pleased to say as we sit here, you know, coming to the end of June, uh, we're actually, uh, backlogs are now reducing. We're, we're sort of getting into a more stable state. There are new sort of use cases now starting. So we're more... We were testing just symptomatic patients. Now we're getting to test employers. We're thinking about back to school environments, back to college. We're thinking about how much you test asymptomatics because we know the virus has spread. So that's been our major focus there. And then in addition, we started a serology task force to look at the immune response. Much more complicated actually from the science because we 
knew from early on some people had a big immune response, some not. Do we test for IgG, IgM? There's also a T cell response. So we've worked with a couple of groups, the Mayo Clinic. We've also been working with Oxford University to develop different assays that allow us to scale up really effective. Has someone had the virus? And importantly, can we test for neutralizing antibodies? Can they actually uh, protect themselves in the future from the spike protein on the virus that would otherwise infect them? So it's been a very busy time. And we expect this to go on well into the autumn with the winter season coming on us. So, so, so with this increased focus you know, in the diagnostic space, uh, what, what has the Thermo Fisher management had to put on the back burner um, as those resources were, were, were being redeployed? Well, there were some R&D projects that we had for other areas in oncology or some of our instruments, new instrumentation that got slowed down, mainly actually just because we couldn't get into our own R&D labs to do the work. Uh, at the same time, we also de deployed resources to other areas beyond diagnostics. So, you know, there's three other areas we've been involved in. One is just basic healthcare, uh, masks, supply, we started manufacturing hand sanitizer at some of our chemical sites, our Fisher Chemicals in the US, in the Loughborough site in the UK. So that was important. Uh, the second, we put resources into understanding the virus. So next generation sequencing, people using our electron microscopy to image the virus at the atomic level and look at the virus, look at the binding domain, look at targets on that binding. And really, that's been amazing. I mean, in a, in a couple of months' time, what typically might have taken us a year, the science has moved incredibly fast. And then now we're into the vaccine development. So we've been looking at manufacturing, moved people into making more raw materials, for example, DNTPs for some of the mRNA vaccines, looking at our CDMO facilities. When all these vaccines get made, they're going to be need to put into small glass vials. And so we've got to make sure that we have enough capacity and our fill and finish capabilities in pharma services. So we've moved people around into these different areas so we could scale up to the really dramatic change we have. It's sort of the plan has been uh, rewritten for the last three months. Yeah, sure. And um, so as chief operating officer, that's uh, you know, a huge, huge task uh, that, you, that you've had on your plate. Um, in the introduction, I, I also mentioned the fact you actually have uh, sort of responsibility for, 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 for innovation at, at, at Thermo Fisher. Given the fact that, you know, what the company does is you're providing, you know, supporting solutions, technology services to all those other parts of that uh, life sciences ecosystem, can you describe sort of the process that, you know, you go through to you identify um, you know, innovative opportunities and then how do you sort of you know, manage that process to go from sort of you know, the just interesting discovery or, or invention to something that actually is you know, a tangible innovation? Yeah, so as you say, Mike, innovation is one of our key growth strategies. So we commit every year to invest in that. We spend about a billion dollars each year in innovation. 
a very decentralized set of R&D teams uh, that typically sit close to the business area because that's where the domain is, either on the application area, be it cell biology or transplant diagnostics, be it mass spectrometry, that's where the expertise then sits. You know, a couple of areas we tend to do to manage the portfolio, uh, myself and our chief scientific officer will look at big themes that are emerging, you know, uh, cell and gene therapies, for example, or looking at new analytical tools to find new targets using single cell proteomics or more functional metabolomics with mass spectrometry. What are the new breakthrough tools that people are interested in? And then we'll either work externally or internally in our labs. We have a scientific advisory board that we'll use to have themes on that. So we might have a theme on, on uh, you know, how to do gene therapy, for example, what are some of the bottlenecks? Out of that, we might identify new workflows in you know, viral uh, manufacturing, viral vectors. And then out of that, we'll either innovate around that or also go through partnerships and, and acquisitions. So it's a multifaceted approach to bring new solutions out to our customers. You know, at the end, our metric is, you know, are customers uh, excited by those innovations and those breakthroughs? Are they buying us? Or are we measure as well the success of those innovations out in the marketplace? So, so, so what proportion is proactive in terms of you know, Thermo Fisher's, you know, looking at those themes and thinking, right, okay, we think that we can make a difference here. And to what extent is it sort of reactive, i.e. A, a customer or a certain part of the, the life sciences community comes to Thermo Fisher and saying, look, hey, we've got a problem. Can you help us? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know, what I know is we have a lot of colleagues, 75,000 colleagues out in all the labs, hearing all the ideas. So we do tend to have an intake process to those ideas. Uh, we have a large corporate account program that we work with large pharma, and more recently we've added into small biotechs, as well as with a lot of sort of KOLs over the years in the academic center who will bring us those ideas, sort of proof of principle. Uh, we tend to seed those with small grants. So we have small seed grants where we'll encourage an internal PI to work with an external PI on those ideas. And then we'll work either technology innovation, applications, workflow, sort of in multiple areas to, to bring those innovations out to commercialization. Um, you know, at the end, our team is inspired by what our customers are doing. So we we're always trying to keep the, the theme is, is this going to enable our customer to do their science better, to make the world healthier, cleaner and safer is our, our mission. So we're always thinking in that, in the innovation, not only is that an invention technically interesting, but actually the innovation is going to make a difference to our customers work every day to make them more innovative or more productive in their lab. We also think about that. And, and and what do you do to, I mean, you, you mentioned that, for example, that you you have sort of grants, et cetera, either for internal PIs or, or, or maybe, you know, sort of for external uh, PIs too. Are there, are there other mechanisms you use to sort of encourage that, um, I guess, 
cross-border uh, collaboration between Thermo Fisher and, and, and its customer base? Yeah, so we, we somewhat modeled on what the NIH does in this area. So we, we like the competitive nature of call for papers, call for ideas. So we have an intensifying innovation program that we run that asks for big, bold ideas as well. And out of that, we work internally, we encourage external collaboration, and then we fund grants pretty much as an NIH or a VC would to breakthrough ideas, maybe ideas that in the business themselves may not just get singly funded. We break and fund longer term ideas to, and we sort of seed money to make sure those get funded and then ultimately moved into one of the business areas. Right. Okay. Uh, but I'm assuming that those investments, they're, they're strategic investments rather than sort of just looking for a financial return. They're looking at new technologies, new techniques. Uh, you know, what we would define as break, breakthrough on their sort of category of, of innovation type. They usually require some proof of feasibility. Can you can you study a single cell and uh, and get the protein structure or sequence out of them? Can you can you do a tomography of a cell and image across the cell with a electron microscopy? These are some of the current sort of breakthrough tools. You know, I'm also I'm always personally inspired. If you've ever been up to the MRC labs in Cambridge, there's a quote on the wall there in the entry from a Nobel Prize winner talking about how new ideas come about usually by new technologies that then lead to new discoveries. And they're in that order. So a lot of our focus is how do you get those new techniques that then could enable those new ideas and discoveries? Sure, sure. Um, so in addition to the sort of the organic growth uh, that Thermo Fisher uh, drives, the company's also grown by a, sort of, you know, a very active uh, acquisition uh, strategy. I mean, most recently, um, you, know, you unveiled an $11.5 billion bid for, for Kyogen, the, um, the German diagnostics uh, business. Can you sort of describe actually how, how that move evolved and you know, what, you know, what are the challenges you, know, you faced you know, when you're sort of looking to make that kind of acquisition? Yeah, so when we're all looking at acquisitions, we're all, always looking at what are capabilities that our customers would like us to have that would be a good fit strategically to us as a company, um, things we might build ourselves or things that we would partner and ultimately acquire. So Kaigen was one of those companies we've always been impressed by. They've got a great uh, track record of innovation, a passionate set of uh, employees who are focused on their customers. Um, we like their leading molecular diagnostics franchise and also their sample preparation. I mean, it's, it's in every lab when you see their Kaijin boxes. And so, you know, we were excited earlier this year. There was an opportunity as they reviewed their strategic options to discuss with them uh, an acquisition. And we were pleased to announce that acquisition earlier in the year, as you say. Um, we're currently uh, working through the necessary approvals for that. Um, and, you know, very much when we do acquire companies, uh, I myself joined through the acquisition of Thermo Fisher of Life Technologies. We take a thoughtful approach, 
to how do we bring in the necessary talent? How do we add the colleagues? How do we not disrupt any uh, any business with the with the customers? And so that's what we'll be doing over the next couple of months as we think about how to create more value for our customers and for Kaijin as we integrate it into ThermoFisher. Right. And I mean, so given the fact that you, as you say, have this uh, innovation uh, remit as well, um, are there sort of, you know, any sort of, you know, technologies or, or services that, you know, you're, you're, you're excited about that you sort of think, uh, you know, this, this is something that, you know, we should keep a closer eye on and it might be something that, you know, Thermo Fisher decides to, you know, put some weight behind in the future? You know, there, there are several areas. I think science is moving very quickly and, you know, we're excited about different tools that can help drug discovery, that can help diagnostics. You know, I think in drug discovery, a lot of people have moved back to a more target-based, how can we develop new targets that are functional? And so new tools that allow you to study the data at the structural level. Um, you know, that's why we invested in cryo-electron microscopy to aid at mass spec, but those kind of functional tools. You know, things that are associated with precision medicine, as you know, not only they want to understand the target, but, you know, diagnostics for precision medicine, uh, therapeutics, you know, smaller batch sizes and those, those areas. So those are some of, I think, the technologies. You know, one of the other things we've been reflecting on is, you know, a lot of innovation is going on with the biotech community. This conference and, and brings together the Cambridge biotech community. We're very focused on how can a large company be responsive or and, and responsive to, to innovation that's going on. So that ecosystem, that's also why we invested in pharmaceutical services because a lot of companies are not going to build their own manufacturing and clinical trials network in the future. And, and so we've, we've built out that and see that as important. Um, so those are some of the areas I think, Mike, that, you know, the ecosystem is changing. And, and so we've tried to channel our investments into those that can be useful to those, you know, pharma and biotech uh, communities around the world. And I mean, just as a sort of final question, as I say you've got that global footprint. Uh, you're normally based in, in Boston. Um, you you know, spend a lot of time in the UK. Uh, we know that Boston and sort of you know, this Cambridge, London, uh, Oxford triangle are you know, hotspots for life sciences innovation. Are there other parts of the world beyond you know, sort of the East Coast and the West Coast of the States? Uh, here in the UK that you're actually excited about? Well, first, I just pull out from your point, I think what matters is the cluster ideas proven to work, right? So I think having clusters of innovators working together, the academic, the industrial, everything else needed in the ecosystem, the lawyers, the infrastructure, IP council, that's what's shown to work in Boston, Cambridge, Mass. It works in the UK, the Oxford, Cambridge cluster. You know, we see other clusters clearly, you know, San Francisco, you know, remains more of a tech cluster, but some bigger environments. Uh, I was down before in San Diego with, and you have Biocom and uh, that cluster down in San Diego is a big cluster. 
And then internationally, I mean, you can't not look at, you know, some of the other clusters in Europe and around Paris, and Munich, uh, Berlin is coming up uh, quickly. And then we look to China, right? It's, it's moved very fast in China and those clusters. But I think it certainly works in these areas where people work together, um, they innovate together. You know, it's one of the things as I think about, hopefully in a post-COVID world, as we think about that, two things I always observe is, one industry and a government have worked very closely together to advance therapies and vaccines. So hopefully that's been of value. And secondly, I hope people understand the value and investment in science. I think one of the differences I do notice when I come back to the UK is, you know, the investment levels need to be there to have a sustainable industry. And so we have to make sure that, you know, everyone realizes out of this the value of science. And we have to invest against that, not only in the basic research, but ensuring we're commercializing that into new industries. So how confident are you that um, the, sort of the agility and the sort of velocity that the life sciences industry, at, you know, working with regulators, et cetera, uh, was able to, uh, to sort of move with, with, with COVID-19, is that is that going to be yeah, something that's sustainable? Are we going to be able to actually learn some things about that and, and, and keep going? Or are we going to go back to uh, where we were before, where things were a little stodgier? You know, I'm very optimistic on multiple fronts that we take the learnings out of it. So there's a learning on scientific collaboration, on publishing, which went very fast. You know, some downsides of that we've seen, but that's gone quickly. I think working with the regulators, they've, they've opened up new paths and we should look at that, not just for diagnostics, but for, you know, basket trials. You know, the trial in the UK was very successful looking at that new medicine sort of in a group that, that we've done in the rescue work. Uh, I think also the funding environment, you know, the government has looked, you know, across the world and look at this as strategic industry. I think the UK government and the life sciences industrial strategy has been very successful and I expect a third version to come out of the industrial strategy. So I, I am to the year, uh, you know, probably not until 2021 as we get post the vaccine uh, that we can get out of uh, into a more normal state, but very optimistic about the life sciences industry. And, you know, I think greater society now has an appreciation of the value of life sciences. So I think bringing some of the best and smartest talent into this industry should also be one of the final things I'd, I'd make a point of. Yeah, that's a great uh, sort of upbeat um, uh, sort of conclusion. So Mark, thanks very much for, for taking the time to, to, to talk to me today. And uh, yeah, I mean, the insights, I think you know, many in the audience are gonna be uh, you know, fascinated by the sort of you know the things that uh, you know Thermo Fisher has had to do, uh, you know particularly sort of, you know, company uh, of its size, you know how agile and nimble you've actually been able to to, to pivot. So, so uh, you know thanks very much. And um, if you'd like to uh, you know tune into future conversations, follow our LinkedIn page where we're going to be you know, uh, posting alerts to, to to future episodes. So in closing, I'd I'd like to thank uh, Mark again for for joining us. And thank you, the listeners, for, for tuning in. So until next time, uh, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward, and I'll see you in the next episode.